All right, well, we are in our final section of our year-long study of the New Testament book of Philippians. And the reason I know that is because in this section, uh, the Apostle Paul begins by saying that. If you brought a Bible uh, along or have a Bible app on your personal device, turn there to the beginning of Philippians chapter 3, where in verse 1 it says this, Finally, my brothers and sisters... Paul is saying, finally, we're here. We're kind of at the end, except we're kind of not because we're actually only about halfway through the letter. When Paul says, finally, he's not a pilot saying we're, we're into our final descent or that these are his like final comments. He's introducing this as the final section of thought. And that's what we're going to spend the next seven weeks digging into is this final section of thought of things that Paul uh, kind of in a remaining way wants to say to this Philippian church. And in this first piece of that final section, Paul kind of introduces his idea right at the front end really clearly. He says in verse one, kind of more fully, finally, my brothers and sisters, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That's what Paul wants in this first section that we're going to look at today. And if we're going to make sense of it, We've got to understand what Paul is getting at when he says rejoice in the Lord. Because at first glance, it can feel like kind of the downbeat or the emphasis is on the word rejoice. As if he's trying to get the Philippians to kind of get out of a bad mood or something. But nothing in the preceding text would lead us to believe that Paul feels like they'd be in a bad mood. On the contrary, as we look forward and dig into the passage that we're going to study today, we need to appreciate that the downbeat of emphasis isn't on the word rejoice. It's actually on the phrase, in the Lord, that Paul is specifying what, or more accurately, in whom he wants the Philippian church to rejoice. That this is a phrase of singularity or exclusivity, that Paul is looking for the Philippian church to rejoice, to find life, to focus, to experience vibrancy in the person of Jesus alone instead of or above all other options that are presented to them. That's the point of the, the passage that we're going to look at today. But the next phrase actually feels a little bit maybe complicated or confusing as verse 1 continues this way. He says in uh, the back half of uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul's saying a couple of things here. First of all, that what he's about to write is something that they already have heard him say. He's writing them again. And when you consider that none of what he's about to say he's addressed in the front half of this letter to the Philippians, it kind of makes you wonder, the text is unclear, as to how they would already have received this information. One possibility is that they've actually been exposed to one of Paul's letters to a different church that after sharing it to that uh, specific congregation, uh, the letter got circulated in a, bro a broader or wider audience, and the Philippians got exposed to that content kind of in a, in a secondary sort of way. Uh, the other option is that 10 years earlier, while Paul was with them face-to-face -face and was involved in planting their church, that just relationally, conversationally, he communicated these things to them, and so they'd already received that directly from him. 
Either way, what Paul is about to say to them or write to them, he expects that they've already understood. But then he says something interesting. He says what he's going to provide is actually a safeguard for them. That the information Paul's about to provide is to protect them from danger. In fact, there's a bit of a play on words in this part of the verse around the word danger or the word trouble, where he says, you know, it is no trouble for me to provide this safeguard, as if he's saying it's no trouble for me to keep you out of trouble. And he's about to provide something that's kind of a, a, a warning, creating some sort of expectation among these Philippian hearers or, or readers. I want us to just kind of press pause and take a step back and imagine what it would be like to assemble as a community, to hear this letter read, and to, to hear these words. You know, a member of their church named Epaphroditus had gone to Rome, had visited Paul in prison, and had come back with this letter and these words from their friend, and he's providing a, a warning. He's kind of setting them up with the expectation that this information that they already know he's going to provide again as a warning to them. And the question is, what could be so significant as to need reminding as a warning to protect them from trouble or danger? Well, in the very next verse, Paul kind of drops that bomb head on where he says in verse two, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Paul kind of plays his card here in trying to warn the Philippian church of a group of people called Judaizers. If you were around a couple of years ago in our study of Paul's letter to the Galatians, uh, we looked at that in depth because the whole letter kind of addresses that, that issue. Here, Paul's just kind of giving them this warning against a group of people who were kind of infiltrating their Christian church and trying to get these Jesus followers to embrace a faith that focused on both Jesus and the Jewish Old Testament law that kind of treated the Old Testament law as an upgrade, like a faith in Jesus 2.0, where you followed Jesus and you observed all these rules and regulations as a way of feeling like you were more significant or, or like you were more in the loop or like you were more like you were more mature. You were leveling up in this Jesus and kind of approach, particularly when it came to embracing the Jewish Old Testament practice of male circumcision as a marker of who really belonged. That's what Judaizers were all about. And Paul has a stark warning to the Philippians against them. In fact, in this warning, he says three different things, all kind of plays on words that are meant to communicate three specific things about what he feels like uh, these Judaizers about. First of all, he calls them dogs. He says, watch out for these dogs. And outside of just a, a derogatory phrase in Paul's culture, dogs was often a term used to describe Gentiles, people who were viewed outside of the people of God, outside of the family of faith. And so Paul here is trying to make a point that these Judaizers who are trying to incorporate all of these Jewish rules and regulations in order to, to, to define who's in are actually the ones that are out. They're actually the dogs, the Gentiles. Similarly, he calls them evildoers, which is speaking to the motivations behind the Judaizers. 
right? To a Judaizer, they believed that they were actually increasing the righteousness of people who were seeking to follow Jesus by adding all of the burden of these Jewish laws to their faith. And Paul contrasts that by saying, through Judaizing, they're not bringing in extra degrees of righteousness. They're actually bringing in extra degrees of evil. And then thirdly, he calls them mutilators of the flesh, which is not just a commentary on Paul's opinion of the requirement of Old Testament circumcision to belong to Christ in these days. It's actually a commentary just on their faith in general. In fact, the word for mutilating is the, the, the Greek word katatome, and it sounded like the Greek word for circumcision, peritome, but peritome meant to cut around, katatome meant to cut to pieces. And in that play on words, what Paul is saying is that these people insisting on circumcision to really belong to the people of God, to the family of faith in Jesus, well, they're actually cutting to pieces the very message of Christ. And in contrast to this warning that was a reminder of information he'd already provided the Philippian church, he says this in response in verse 3. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ Jesus, and we who put no confidence in the flesh. It's interesting how this response to the warning Paul provided that had kind of three tiers of derogatory statement towards the Judaizers actually comes in a four-tiered kind of form. It's as if Paul's kind of providing an antidote that's of more significance or greater emphasis than the problem, right? It's like the remedy is, is stronger than the diagnosis. And in this four-tiered layer response, Paul actually presents some plays on words uh, in two pairings of two. And so in the first pairing, he says, we are the circumcision and we serve God by his spirit. These are comments of identity and belonging. Because to a Judaizer, their service to God was by obeying increasing numbers of Jewish laws. And Paul's contrasting that service with their service as a church happening exclusively through the Spirit of Christ that enables them, instead of having to obey those, long, those laws to belong, to instead be the circumcision, to be those who belong simply by the Spirit of Christ. Similarly, when he says that we're the people who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, that language of boasting and confidence is a, an indicator or a statement of trust. Paul's describing their trust in Jesus alone, not in what he describes as the flesh, which isn't just a physical commentary on the Jewish practice of circumcision. It's actually a spiritual commentary against a faith that relies on man-made rules and man-made religion and man-made efforts in order to be right with God and to feel like you belong. He's saying in greater detail what he said in the very opening uh, of this section of text where he wanted people simply as brothers and sisters in Christ to rejoice in the Lord exclusively. And after warning them of these Judaizers, he kind of builds that point in greater detail today, wanting them to simply put their trust and find their identity in the exclusivity and singularity of Jesus alone. 
you take a step back and appreciate that the whole point of this, we called it a friendship letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians was, we discovered this in earlier sections that we looked at, was for them to abound in love to be this abounding love amidst the diversity of all the people in that community. And through abounding in love, they would be a clearer and more compelling picture of Jesus to the world around them. And what Paul is saying to them through this passage we're looking at today is that if you're going to do that, finally, in this final section of thoughts, as he starts to kind of land the plane, if you're going to be that compelling picture of Jesus, it's only going to happen by rejoicing in Jesus alone and not being distracted or having your faith detracted by the influence of these Judaizers who are trying to get you to buy into a faith of Jesus and a bunch of religious rules. He's saying if you're going to be a Jesus-revealing people, it's going to be through relying on Jesus, and that's it. That's really the point of this early Philippians chapter 3 passage that I believe God wants to share with us as well today, that if we're going to be Jesus-revealing people, it's only going to happen by being exclusively Jesus-relying people. We talked about this a lot uh, in our study of the book of Galatians. And so for a lot of us, it's probably a reminder to us as well that when you start adding other requirements and other expectations to the purity and simplicity of what we call the gospel, the message of the person of Jesus that is available to people, we've said before, by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. When you start adding other rules and expectations and requirements to belong and fit in and matter and be significant and define maturity, you aren't leveling up. You're actually leveling down the potency and the purity and simplicity of the gospel. We said in Galatians that adding all those extra rules is watering down or polluting the purity of the gospel. Today, I want to take a, a bit of a different perspective instead of viewing it as watering down or polluting. And it, it, it came from thinking about when I was a kid. I, I don't know how many of you, when you were kids, got the luxury of having sandwiches made with pure white bread. But I, unfortunately, was not one of those kids. One of the heartaches of my childhood, kind of in giving you some indication of just how tough a childhood I had, was that when I would go to school, my sandwiches at lunch were made of, like, cracked wheat or brown bread or whole wheat, kind of, you know, I, I could I could see the guys beside me, all my friends, they'd have their PB&J or their ham and cheese with these beautiful white strips of wonder bread, you know, kind of enveloping them. And I just envied them throughout my young, young life. Uh, now that I'm slightly older, when our family goes away on vacation to Mexico, we go grocery shopping, and I inevitably, every time, will pick up a loaf of bread, and I'll make sure it's the whitest kind of bread possible. Only in Mexico, they don't have what's called Wonder Bread. They have a, a similar, it must be the Mexican equivalent of Wonder Bread. It's called Bimbo Bread. In fact, Bimbo, as the bread company, is the sponsor of the Guadalajara soccer team that we cheer for called the Chivas. Here's a, a photo of my kids, my boys, when they were little, uh, going to a, a Guadalajara Chivas soccer game. You can see the Bimbo logo, how it looks like the Wonder Bread logo, uh, on their shirt. It certainly makes interesting conversation when Becky wears that shirt. She has to make the disclaimer to people to understand that, you know, that's not a statement of, of character at all. It's actually just a bread company that's, that's sponsoring the soccer team. 
But I say all that because I, I, I discovered this recently that in one slice of bimbo white bread, there's actually more sodium and more calories than in most entire loaves of bread completely. And in one single slice of bimbo white bread, there's almost a teaspoon of sugar. And the point is, when you start providing those additives to bread like that, the additives may make it taste better, but it's actually less healthy which I know my mother, who on Mother's Day somewhere on Vancouver Island visiting her brother for his 80th birthday is screaming an amen because she's probably watching this video. So mom, happy Mother's Day. You were right. Additives might taste better, but they're actually less healthy. And the same thing's true spiritually, that we might think additives taste better from a belonging perspective or a significance perspective or a maturity perspective. But spiritually speaking, additives are actually less healthy in the purity and simplicity of devotion to Jesus alone. That's what the Apostle Paul starts to refer to as he segues into this next section, the beginning of verse 4. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence, that's what we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, is Paul's own personal life and experience. Here he's just referring to himself as a former Jewish religious leader who actually checked off all of those and style boxes. Um, He's just declaring his credibility in the message that he's just provided, that he's not a person who's been unable to do that. By contrast, he's actually a person who's tasted the white bread and can credibly declare it as unhealthy. And so kind of wrapping this up for you and I today, I just want us to appreciate, especially if we studied the book of Galatians together as a reminder that our belonging is not a product of Jesus and a bunch of other things, as much as we might be tempted to believe that. Your belonging is not a product of Jesus and how much you attend stuff or how much you participate in stuff or what role you play or the prominence of that role or who your friends are and whether you're in the right kind of social loops. Your belonging is not a product of Jesus and... It's a product of Jesus, and that's it. Similarly, your belovedness in the eyes of God is not a product of Jesus and you doing a bunch of stuff to try to be more beloved. It's not a product of Jesus and staying away from certain sins or Jesus and a whole bunch of extra quiet times in Bible reading and prayer or Jesus and extra hours of ministry service. It's not a product of Jesus and your belovedness is a result of Jesus and that's it. And again, likewise, your spiritual maturity, your growth and transformation into the likeness of Jesus is not a product of Jesus and a bunch of other stuff. It's not a product of Jesus and how many books you read, Jesus and how many conferences you attend, Jesus you know, and the degree to which you learn to speak fluent Christianese. It's a product of Jesus and that's it. 
kind of segues us back to last week's conversation and the whole last series where we learned about a homegrown faith, about what it takes to be an influence, particularly as parents and caregivers, to the next generation in our homes. It's not a product of Jesus and signing them up for stuff, Jesus and reading all the right books, Jesus and going to the events and conferences and having mentors. It's not a product of Jesus and... It's a product of the inside-out, transforming work of Jesus Christ alone who bears the fruit of his Holy Spirit in an ongoing, exuding way, in a way that is caught more than taught. Influencing those around us is not a product of Jesus and, it's a product of Jesus and that's it. So for review, as a warning and as an inspiration to us as a community for whom today Jesus intends us to increasingly be abounding in his love and amidst our diversity in that abounding love be a clearer and more compelling picture of the life and love of Jesus to the world around us, let's appreciate first things first how that happens. And let's not be tempted to eat the white bread of Jesus and all the additives that might feel like it tastes better, but as a result is actually less healthy. Let's appreciate that if we're going to be the abounding in love, Jesus revealing people that Jesus intends us to be personally and together, that Jesus revealing happens through the exclusivity of Jesus relying, of rejoicing in and finding our belonging, our identity, our significance, and our transformation. Not in Jesus and a bunch of stuff, but in Jesus. And that's it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you today and we're grateful that in you and you alone, we can find new and risen and transformationally powerful life. We thank you for your grace that through our faith can enable us to experience this life with you and to belong and to be significant and to be beloved and to be transformed and all the awesome stuff that you want to do in and among us. Most of all, we thank you that we can be a community, that we can give and receive and abound in love and through that increasing experience of your love, we can paint a picture of your life and love to the watching world. Help us to do that in your life and strength, Jesus, and help us individually and as a community to look to you and only you for that life, for that vibrancy, for that transforming power, and to be people who rejoice in you, Jesus, as our Lord, not in Jesus and, but in Jesus, you, and that's it. We love you and we thank you for all these things, Jesus. We pray in your name alone. Amen.